Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Experts. I'm Dr. Ken Spiegelman, Director of Postgraduate Medical Education uh, at C here at Connecticut Children's. Dr. Salazar cannot be here this morning. He's giving a lecture outside of town. We are so happy to bring back Dr. Schreiber and our guest lecturer, Dr. Allison Cropo from the Department of Orthopedics, who will be talking about COVID and safe participation in sports. Just wanted to leave you with a couple of very important notes today. As many of you know, children's boosters for ages 5 through 12 will most likely be released to the public in the next couple of weeks. Connecticut Children's, with the help of Hartford Healthcare, will be sponsoring a number of vaccination clinics around the greater Hartford area and even beyond. Some of these may be at the Children's Hospital and at Dunkin' Donuts Park. In order to make this happen, uh, we'll depend greatly on volunteers, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and doctors and nurses who are able to administer the vaccines to many of the children in our area. As we all know, we all know best how to answer questions to our parents and administer the vaccines. And I can't think of a more important mission in my whole career than vaccinating children during the pandemic that we are in right now. If you are interested in volunteering, if not for a half a day or a day, sometime in mid-November, and then three weeks later in December, you can contact our own Elizabeth Anderson. The contact information will be on the chat with her address. You can leave your information, and there'll be more coming out about this in the future. In addition, we'd like to strongly encourage all of you in private practices to sign up with CTWIZ, which is the Connecticut Immunization Information System. And if you can establish that in the linkage with your whole, with your own electronic medical records, it will greatly facilitate the administration of this vaccination program. So thank you so much for your time, and I'll introduce John right now. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Um, I appreciate uh, the introduction, and it is a very exciting time for us um, during this pandemic. I did want to start, though, and read you something. Um, uh, we lost another 1,200 or 1,400 or so people last week to COVID. It's quite remarkable. And uh, one of them happened to be Colin Powell, uh, General Powell. And I wanted to read you something. He said he's a great American story growing up in the South Bronx and ultimately ending up being uh, uh, nationally recognized and even asked to be a presidential candidate at one point. I'm going to read you one of his quotes. We have to start thinking of America as a family. We have to stop screeching at each other, stop hurting each other, and instead start caring for, sacrificing for, and sharing with each other. We cannot move forward if cynics and critics swoop down and pick apart anything that goes wrong to a point where we lose sight of what is right, decent, and uniquely good about America. So. Uh, in memory of General Powell, I wanted to read that, and we have a lot to cover today. Um, there is a lot going on, much of it good, some not so good. Here we are. Um, once again, the United States is emerging out of a resurgence. Um, this looks good. The United States trends show uh, much decreased new cases. Of course, it's still you know 70,000 a day, but it is much improved and in the right direction. Ditto with hospitalizations, which is a critical issue as the healthcare workforce burns out all across the country. The hospitalizations, which had been almost over 100,000, are down to about 50,000 nationally. It's still a lot of sick people. 
but it is subsiding in the United States. And this is good news. Now, the question is going to be with so many unimmunized and winter coming and moving back indoors, are we going to have yet another resurgence in parts of the United States? I do not know the answer to that. The United States deaths are declining. Um, I mentioned, unfortunately, it's still above 1,000 a day, but it's down almost 50% from what it was and continues to decline. And certainly, it's everyone's fervent hope that the death rate in the United States continues to decline. We have fear as the winter comes uh, with a lot of unimmunized people in some states that we will have a resurgence and more deaths, but we will see what happens. Now, these are the hot spots in the United States now. You'll notice the Southeast Delta has burned out right now. Um, it seems to have torn through it. It uh, did a lot of damage, a lot of deaths, a lot of ICU hospitalizations, and, and now is waning. Uh, it's very bad in the uh, in the Upper West, and I'll show you. We'll we'll drill down on Montana shortly, and I'll show you that. Uh, and there's some uh, more community spread in parts of upstate New York, and actually one county in Maine. Uh, that's actually an under-immunized county. So it's all over. But um, the Southeast and New England um, are in a better shape uh, than the rest of the country right now. In the Southeast, again, having suffered a very severe uh, Delta wave. Despite the data, and I'm going to show you data showing so clearly that the vaccines protect against death and hospitalization, the United States immunizations continue to lag. And despite having supply chain where there's more than enough vaccine for everyone, we continue to be under 60% of all ages vaccinated. I'm hoping that will creep up as we expand uh, immunizations to younger age groups, which I'll talk about. Uh, and again, in the adult population where it is available, we're below 70% nationally, and that's very regional. Uh, so um, it, it's as, I guess as we look back on this pandemic, this will have been the one thing that we could have done better. And uh, I remain saddened uh, by all the misinformation that has driven many people to refuse vaccination. Um, the United States has sustained a remarkable number of COVID deaths. I, I don't want to lose sight of this. It's just a big number now, and you sort of tune it out. But 700,000 people have died of COVID in the United States. It's much more than all the World War II casualties. And um, I, I just look at that number, and, and these are all people with families and famous people, not famous people from all walks of life, race, creed, color. and. Um, this is a huge hit and something I don't think any of us should lose sight of as we talk to patients, families, and just say, you know, 700,000 people have died. Let's not add you to that list. So it's about 1,200 a day, quite a bit down. And let's hope that continues to decline uh, as it has been over the last few weeks. Now, low immunization states are particularly um, up in the upper west have more Delta cases, hospitalizations, and deaths per 100,000 than high immunization states. This is just factual. And so politicians can get out there and say stuff, but the facts are, if you're a state with low immunization, such as the ones listed here, you have a much higher hospitalization and death rate per 100,000 from COVID than high immunization states. And these are the, this is the, the list of the worst in the country. Uh, continuing to have remarkably low um, immunization rates. So it's, it's a challenge. And this is COVID deaths per 100,000 residents since June. 
And this is when the Southeast had their enormous Delta outbreak. So, I mean, again, this is factual. So if you're un under immunized and Delta burns through your state, you're gonna have a much higher death rate from COVID per 100,000 state residents than you would in New England, for example, where we're heavily immunized. And although we still have community spread, our death rate has stayed very, very low. So this is factual, and you can see up here in, uh, in the Upper West, where there's a lot of COVID right now, the death rate per 100,000 is quite high. So these are the facts, and I'm going to show you more of these facts because I think it's important as we move into the next phase of this pandemic that we try to sweep away some of this misinformation and stick to the facts uh, for our patients, and particularly now parents uh, coming in. Unimmunized, these are CDC data, unimmunized Americans are 11.3 times more likely to die from COVID-19 infection than if you're immunized. So to me, that's a log difference. So if you're immunized, you know, I have a log less chance of dying from COVID than if I'm unimmunized. So these are just facts. And um, so I think, and you're also, by the way, six times more likely if you're unvaccinated to actually get COVID. So um, these are the facts out there for everyone to see, despite the political posturing and stuff going on. This is what people need to know. Now, let's focus on Montana, a state that is un under immunized. It's only got a population of a million. It's, it's a little bit larger than Vermont, um, a couple hundred thousand larger. And, and um, this is the daily admissions per hundred thousand. Uh, for from COVID. And you can see, you know, it's totally out of control uh, in Montana. Um, and these are the hotspots. Now, it's gotten better, actually. Um, but, you know, it's a state with only a few, maybe a, a couple thousand at the most uh, ICU beds, if that. I, I don't know the number, but they have 500 people hospitalized from COVID. And uh, eight deaths, which is down uh, 2,000 total deaths, but the population of the whole state's only a million. So um, this, is, this is a huge hit in a very underpopulated state that's very rural. And you can see some counties have enormous COVID uh, problems right now. And then this came out from the, uh, health, the biggest health system in Billings uh, last week, or earlier this week, and they just showed you what their statistics are. So if this is, a, a, the one, Billings is not a big city, by the way, but this is what they have. They had 142 people hospitalized in one hospital in Billings, which is a teeny city much smaller than Hartford, 142 in the hospital, 119 of those people were unvaccinated and 23 were fully vaccinated, um, which is very typical of what we're seeing. 43 were in the ICU uh, and 31 on ventilators and the vast majority of those were unvaccinated. So these are the facts. So if you're in Montana and you're unvaccinated, this is what's gonna happen. And so despite that, the immunization rate has not picked up in the state. And, and again, a very sad reflection on our inability to sort through facts and fiction at the moment in the United States. But this is the largest hospital in Billings. It's packed with COVID, almost all unvaccinated. What's happening in Connecticut? A very different story here. COVID-19 has really flipped to be an endemic viral infection. And this is, uh, again, this is all new for us. We're gonna watch and see what happens, but when you have a highly immunized population as we do, and Massachusetts as well, and Vermont, um, what's happening is we're seeing uh, a fall off, a steady fall off in cases, and now it's leveling out. Uh, and I think this is gonna continue. I think we're gonna continue to see a few hundred cases, new cases a day, 
and it's leveled out and become sort of an endemic disease here. And interestingly, because of the high immunization rates and because immunizations protect against death, our death rate has remained very low. This is the key issue. Why get vaccinated? You want to prevent morbidity and mortality. And you can see here uh, the death rate in Connecticut. You can really count on one hand. It's not zero. It's probably not going to be zero, um, but it's very low. And I believe this is sort of how we're going to be cooking along um, in high immunization states. And this is a much better place to be than many other parts of the country. It's a remarkable success, a tribute to the population of Connecticut, uh, who mostly believe in science and to the public health leadership and the leadership from the governor's office, as well as I would, I would include Massachusetts, Vermont, and other New England states in that statement. Hospitalization rates are stable. Uh, they've drifted down. We have a few hundred people across the state in the hospital. Um, as if we can continue immunizations, getting our rate up a little higher, get those boosters out, get children immunized, I think this will stay relatively low and may decline farther. So we have work to do still, but this is an enviable position to be compared to many other states. You'll also note, I, I will say, I'm going to show you now, um, the state has improved dramatically in community spread, but we have a problem in the east. And actually, this part of the state is under immunized. And so you, this is where COVID's concentrated right now. If you travel, you want to know that. We have some pockets um, in uh, Hartford, and then you actually you go up to Springfield, and there's a pocket of a lot of COVID right here. So, uh, but the state's improved. You remember this map a few months ago was entirely red, and we are moving in a better place with community spread. It's still there, but it's a much better place than we were a few weeks ago. And you'll see again, um, these are the data I was able to get from the DPH. About 70% of new cases are, on, are not fully vaccinated. They got one dose, so they're not vaccinated at all. And only 30% of the new cases are in vaccinated people, and the vast majority of those people are not in the hospital. So again, immunization works. It's not 100%. It has never been in the history of immunizations, but it's pretty darn good. So how many COVID-19 vaccines has Connecticut apps, app actually um, administered? It's kind of cool. You can see that 2.7 million people uh, and 77% of the state have gotten at least one dose and 2.4 million or 70% of the entire state population is fully vaccinated. Remember that in, that's using the whole population. That's gonna get better as we immunize younger kids. This is gonna go up to 80%, maybe more. So again, a remarkable success story if only the rest of the United States had embraced what's working in New England and some of the other mid-Atlantic states, we would be in a much better place coming out of the pandemic, but it is what it is. This is a remarkable success. Now, let's talk about masks, okay? Masks don't work. I mean, I watch some of these videos in school board meetings. I mean, masks work. The data's really, really clear, okay? Masks work. And here is infectious um, COVID-2 in SARS-CoV-2 in exhaled aerosols and the efficacy of masks. It published the 14th of September. And it turns out that loose-fitting masks provide significant but it's not as good as tight-fitting masks. So N95s are the best. Um, and so, uh, but it's no different than any other finding we already knew that surgical masks work some, N95s work great. Um, and you can see this is actually measuring aerosolized mRNA copies. And this is you know, pretty much with nothing. This is in the saliva. This is the, the coughing uh, stuff. 
And then this is what's on the thing you coughed right on a table. That's what's on the table. And then these are with the various masks. And you can see a fine aerosol with a good mask. You just don't, you just don't have a lot of mRNA copies bouncing around. It works. So a lot. It's not 100%, but it works a lot. It's going to reduce spread. So, you know, over and over again, we have documented data showing that masks work. Here's a great uh, study just came out late September from MMWR. Pediatric COVID-19 cases in counties with and without school mask requirements. And they found, uh, I, there's a graphic that's better. So it's a, a nice paper. Um, it's got a lot of data in it. And they found that if you were an unmasked, you had 3.1% more chance of the school district having a lot of outbreaks, a triple the amount. So let me go back. And so it's 3.7 times higher um, with no masks than schools with an early mask requirement. So it works. You're going to reduce the outbreaks in schools by wearing masks. It's not going to be 100%, but it's going to be a lot better than without masks. And you're going to keep the school open until we can immunize our kids. So again, over and over again, the data show that masks have efficacy and why there's this continued misinformation out there that they don't work and, and all the things that we hear. Uh, it puzzles me, but we can look at data. We can show people the data. It's not true. And it works in school districts to reduce outbreaks. And you can see the here, the uh, blue, dark blue bars are those without masks. They had a lot more COVID outbreaks. And oh, here's the graphic they showed. Schools without mask requirements are three and a half times more likely to have outbreaks than schools with masks. It's really simple. So if you're a superintendent, you're going to see this. You're going to want to have masks until your kids are immunized. It's not complicated. You keep your school open that way. And whenever I, I've had some parents come to me and say, oh, the masks are inter, you know, interfering with their ability to socialize and all, I say, you're absolutely right. But it's really important we keep the schools open until you can immunize your kids, and then we'll take the masks away. It'll be great. But now we need masks. And so I think we need to talk to people like that, honestly, and, and uh, a small vocal group uh, that's misinformed shouldn't be guiding our public policy. Booster updates, a lot going on. I know you've seen all the news today, um, but summarizing, the FDA uh, committee voted unanimously to recommend booster doses of Moderna six months after for 65 and above, high-risk people younger than that, and those at occupational high-risk. So Moderna and Pfizer, boosters, no problem after six months, go for it. J&J &J Booster um, voted unanimously to recommend booster doses. Now, I'm going to talk, this has changed a bit, because the ACIP met, this was from yesterday, ACIP met, um, and uh, they made some decisions. And then mix and match uh, is now authorized. So summarizing, Moderna, just like Pfizer, get your booster dose at six months for that, that population. J&J, &J, they're now saying get a booster after two months. It's just not as efficacy, it doesn't have the same efficacy as Moderna and Pfizer. And you can get any vaccine as a booster. And in fact, it might be preferable to get Moderna or Pfizer as your booster because the CDC ACIP committee just approved mix and match boosters. So this is a great news because I had trouble. You know, what? where am I going to get my Pfizer booster? And this pharmacy didn't have it, and I had to go 20 miles. Now it doesn't matter. You get Moderna if you have Pfizer to start. You can get Pfizer if you have Moderna to start. And if you had J&J &J get boosted, I would prefer you get boosted with Moderna or Pfizer because the immunization rates, the immunization titers are better. So um, this is from DPH yesterday. It's already out of date. It's very exciting. Um, it's going to move us forward and streamline our ability for adults to get boosted and, quite frankly, for um, 
people just to relax about it and go to whatever pharmacy they need to or their doctor's office and get this done. Now, what's the data about mix and match, which was just approved by the CDC committee after the FDA approved it? This is going to happen, I, I think, literally today or next week. So this is the NIH study that they based most of their decision on. It's important to recognize. So it had about 500 people, 458 people. And what they did is they had nine, they had different groups. So you had adenovirus vaccines to start and you got boosted uh, with mRNA vaccines. You, you had the mRNA vaccines to start, you get boosted uh, different ways. And it turns out that no matter what you did, it's all spike protein, right? It's all generating immunity to spike protein. No matter how you mixed and matched it, you, you got pretty good improvement in titers. Now, uh, the best really was um, having the RNA vaccines. And um, I, I don't see the data. I didn't show you the data of the adenovirus boost, but uh, vaccine boost, the J&J &J vaccine. But in general, boosting with the mRNA vaccines is better. You can see if you start off with the adenovirus, you get pretty good boosting with uh, any of the mRNA vac uh, vaccines. So um, this is very important data. It's pretty much why the ACIP said mix and match is OK. It is a small study. We'll have to watch closely as we go forward with this and be honest with people. It's based on a relatively small number. Side effects, by the way, were the same sore arm, occasional swollen glands, don't feel good for a day uh, with the boosters. And some people have very little symptoms with boosters. So again, a very good news to streamline and quite frankly, to make it less confusing for the American public. You just need a vaccine. It doesn't have, you don't have to figure out as the RNA and this and that. Just get your booster, it doesn't matter. And, and I think it's gonna really simplify things for people. Age expansion, very exciting. Um, they met and approved, um, preliminarily looked at the data. They will be meeting the 26th. It's anticipated because the data for uh, Pfizer is pretty strong that they will approve Pfizer for um, age five to 11. The DPH is already ordering this. It will be different than the adult vaccine. It's in, different dose, 10 micrograms, not 30. It will be in pediatric vials with 10 doses, and you cannot use the adult vaccine to give to kids. It's a separate Pfizer product, which I think is good. Um, and uh, the state is already working, as you heard from Ken, with pediatric practices. There'll be some mass vaccination centers. Um, children's, Connecticut children's will have a place at our hospital to immunize some of our complex patients who really require special input to be immunized and then we will also uh, partner with a variety of other health entities in the state uh, to uh, try to immunize children and other scenarios as well so stay tuned uh, this will be happening late october it's anticipated the cdc committee meets november 2nd and 3rd it's anticipated if they approve it that early november this will be rolling out it's quite exciting and so again a really big move forward for us as we try to conquer this and move this to a low level endemic disease in our state and in New England and frankly, the rest of the country. Ivermectin, why are we still talking about Ivermectin? You know, Well, it's interesting. So um, this study, which purported to find great efficacy of Ivermectin has now been withdrawn because it was bad data and so that's gone. Um, but this was touted in the press as showing it works. However, there is a meta-analysis of every bad study done that shows efficacy. So these are all these uncontrolled trials out there, but they did meta-analysis and they found the totality of trials suggested there was some efficacy. This came out in June. This is out there. That's why I'm going to take ivermectin. 
And then there's this study that showed in a controlled randomized clinical trial that it didn't work. The findings do not support the use of ivermectin. So, you know, from my perspective, controlled randomized, you know, following that prospectively really is the clinical standard for efficacy studies doesn't show efficacy yet. I mean, I have an open mind. I suppose if we did a larger study, it might. Um, the World Health Organization is advising that ivermectin only be used uh, within clinical trials. And in fact, there is an NIH clinical trial looking at ivermectin and there are no data yet. I don't have the data. So I approach this saying, I don't know, but I do know that I don't prescribe drugs that I don't know if work or not. And this, we don't know if this works. And the only good clinical randomized control trial I found showed that it didn't work. So I think it's important that we have a balanced approach. I have an open mind in vitro at very high dose, ivermectin kills the virus. But remember, it's a higher dose than you could actually take without hurting yourself. So, you know, we'll see where this ends up. But this is why there's that storm out there of I, I took ivermectin, I'm good. Well, I'm not sure about that. Disinformation about COVID-19 immunization is really strong. I don't underestimate the corrosive effect this is um, one of my favorite disinformation um, media pundits who basically made a big deal that Colin Powell died and he was fully vaccinated without saying that he had multiple myeloma and he doesn't make antibodies well and he has cancer. So, uh, you know, he's immunosuppressed and everyone knows the vaccine doesn't work as well as immunosuppressed. So I think, um, again, you know, you choose one fact and you twist it so that people get doubts. Oh, my God, he got died anyway. Why would I get the vaccine? Right. Um, and this kills people. Let's be frank. This directly kills people who've chosen not to get vaccinated and end up, as I showed you, with the death rates in the states that are under-immunized. And then uh, another hit on Colin Powell, post-vaccine breakthrough infection kills more people than Iraq weapons of mass destruction ever did. So, you know, that's a fascinating um, comparison and one in which factually is correct because they never found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But you and I both know that post-vaccine breakthrough infection kills a minuscule number of people compared to COVID. So once again, facts twisted to create doubt and stir up people to be angry uh, that this is not going to work. And then one of my favorite news networks, One America Now News Network, uh, a constant stream of uh, parental rights are being violated. And uh, yeah, this is, to me, this is going to end up with all pediatric vaccinations shortly. Uh, and this is out there on both what's considered, um, uh, I guess, mainstream now and uh, by pundits and politicians who are stirring the pot. It's very sad. You see the facts. The facts show that not getting immunized, you have an 11 times chance of dying compared to somebody who's immunized who gets COVID. It's a log difference. So those are the facts. And unfortunately, they're not being presented. So the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, fall 2021, we have a lot of good. The Delta variant resurgence is declining all across the country. Uh, the upper, mid, upper West is suffering still, but in under immunized states, but it's going down. So this resurgence is fading. COVID-19 is endemic in New England now. It's under control. Our new normal may be moderate community spread with low hospitalizations and deaths. I think pediatric immunization is gonna drive this down even further. And we're gonna to move to a place where we can live with this and move back to more normal status. But we have to actually do it, right? We're gonna to have to actually get parents on board and really move this ahead. With winter coming, public health uh, experts do worry that we're gonna see a resurgence across the country as people move indoors. I believe we might see that in New England, but once again, I think 
hospitalizations and deaths will be blunted. Despite clear data, you can't get any clearer the data we have showing high immunization rates, reduce mortality, hospitalizations, make your state healthier, make people less likely to die. Some politicians continue to hurt their own constituents with anti-vaccine rhetoric. Um, uh, I'm, I cannot explain it. We're gonna need, I put this in last month, we're gonna need to immunize the rest of the world. We're so self-focused in this country now. We've gotta push these vaccines out to the developing world. Otherwise, we're gonna have another variant, you know, the Pi variant in a few months from some other country. We need to immunize the world. And I think the West has really lagged at this because we're so focused on getting our own stuff under control. And I told you that really exciting data, boosters are now authorized for all the vaccines, mix and match has now been approved make our lives much easier. And October 26th and early November are the dates where we think the FDA and the ACIP are gonna approve Pfizer for down to age five. Thank you for your attention. I'm really interested in hearing our sports colleague talk about the implications of this because there's so many questions we've had uh, in terms of sports. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm Al Allison Crapo. I'm one of the uh, sports orthopedic surgeons here at Connecticut Children's. Um, and I've been asked today to talk about the Delta variant and fall sports. Um, I guess my good news is that I'm talking about this in the state of Connecticut, so um, a little bit different. Um, I Just a little bit about myself. Um, I joined Connecticut Children's about a little over two years ago now. I was in practice uh, in Virginia for seven years prior to that. Um, I have a dual fellowship training in pediatric orthopedics and sports medicine. So where are we? Um, fall sports are back in action for 2021. This is um, exciting for a lot of people. It's exciting for us. It's exciting for um, our student athletes. Uh, we have uh, several sports going on right now. I uh, coded them a lot according to the risk rate uh, as far as contact. Um, so football, soccer, field hockey, volleyball, cross country, swimming, and golf. Um, so risk factors for participating in a sport and transmission for COVID are fairly straightforward, similar to everything else that we deal with. So indoor sports are more risky than sports. Um, sports where there's contact, uh, particularly in football, where there's often very close face-to-face -face contact um, are more risky than non-contact sports, such as cross country, golf, um, and then sports where there's shared equipment uh, can also be more risky. Next slide. So what we've found is that the risks are actually greater for transmission, mostly during the outside times of sports. So with things associated with sports, but not necessarily um, actively participating in the sport itself. So sideline and sitting on the bench, um, and then all the outside stuff, carpooling to and from practices. And this really applies also to, to youth sports in general and not just school sports. Um, locker rooms, uh, indoor practices and weight training, and then again, the outside things, team meals, gatherings, get-togethers um, prior to games are the times when they're actually more likely uh, to have COVID transmission. Next slide. 
So what are the recommendations right now? Um, based off of the CDC recommendations and the American Academy of Pediatric recommendations, um, the CIAC, which governs all of our Connecticut uh, school sports, had come out with a, a document um, for fall sports recommendations, um, essentially addressing several concerns. Um, so stratified the sports by, by their risk and then looked at times where we can reduce our, those risks. So um, uh, our athletes should wear masks um, and those should be worn for all indoor activities. Um, right now there's only one indoor sport, or I guess there's two, volleyball and swimming, um, but they do recommend wearing masks consistently for volleyball, including during play. For swimming, anytime that the athletes are not in the water, they should be wearing masks. And then any other time that students are indoors, so in the locker room, during weight training, um, and during any other indoor practices, they should be wearing masks. Um, if there's opportunities for athletes to transition to outdoor practices, even for sports that are traditionally indoors, like volleyball, um, then they don't need to wear masks. Um, so any training that can be done outdoors um, at this point, we feel can be done fairly safely without a mask on. Um, additionally, officiating uh, indoor sports um, uh, should re require mask wear. Um, and right now, masks are not required for outdoor activities um, here in the state of Connecticut. So practice, competition, training, um, it's, it's actually interesting. Uh, I covered my first football game a few weeks ago and, and seeing a full stadium full of um, parents and students and seeing the athletes out on the fields and without masks on is sort of a, a very different view from what we've seen previously. Next slide. And then the, the next piece of our puzzle, obviously, um, which we've spent a lot of time talking about is vaccination. So right now um, there are not mask mandates um, for high school athletes. Um, there, the CIAC and the, the Department of Public Health recommend um, vaccinations for all eligible student athletes. Um, keep in mind that many of our collegiate athletes are under vaccine mandates. Next slide. And then on the national level, um, the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, which is one of uh, the larger sports medicine organizations, has actually come out in support for mandating vaccines for all eligible athletes 12 and up. Um, and then a joint statement was released slightly less sort of edgy, I guess, um, recommending from multiple um, organizations, including AAP, um, and several other sports medicine uh, organizations uh, that we at least discuss the COVID vaccine. Um, and it's for the purpose of advocating for education and discussion of COVID vaccine status during pre-participation pre physicals. So every student athlete, um, I'm sure all of our pediatricians are well-versed, um, require pre-participation physical um, before participating in sports. And so it, the, the idea is that this is an opportunity um, to have this conversation to discuss it. At this point, um, again, it's not required. I don't know what obviously will happen down the road and we don't know what will happen um, with, with the onset of winter sports, but right now um, the ask is that we use this as an opportunity. Next slide. Um, just a brief, this is slightly outside of our uh, scope of talk today, but just there are, um, the AAP has published 
sort of a return to play um, guideline. Um, it's an excellent resource um, based off of a, um, a paper that was published. Uh, and so this just goes through um, return to play after having COVID. So depending on the severity of the symptoms will sort of depend on uh, what level of, uh, of evaluation uh, is recommended after this and then at what point patients can be cleared to play. Um, so I'm not gonna go through it all, but um, I'm sure again, most people use this as a good resource, but if you weren't aware, it is on the AAP uh, website. Next slide. So how did it go? Um, I spent a lot of time last night looking through to find out if there was any published reports of games getting canceled or postponed or outbreaks related to sports activities. Um, overall, there's nothing out in Connecticut. Um, there is no data on the CDC or on the CIAC website um, right now about any issues that have arisen based on, um, on the fall sports. Um, but in other places, and I think this is going to be a concern when we come into our winter sports season, um, uh, you know, there are certainly reports that youth sports are, are um, tied to multiple outbreaks. Um, there's particularly uh, several uh, issues related to hockey. Um, and obviously, we're in Connecticut, um, and winter is coming, and hockey season is coming as well. Um, so I think this is going to be important to see what's been happening. Um, and then again, hopefully, uh, because of our outstanding vaccination rate, um, that we will escape from major problems. Next slide. Um, so admittedly, uh, you know, there's there's been some uh, studies that are coming out right now looking at what happened when kids went back to sports after the COVID break, as we'll call it. Um, you know, we were very concerned uh, sports were starting back up, especially uh, last spring when kids had been out of sports for months and months. Um, they had been their activity levels had been drastically decreased because they weren't going to school. Most kids woke up, um, opened up their laptops, stayed in their bed and attended classes. Um, and so, you know, this was a huge concern, um, I think for a lot of us. And we certainly did see some, some interesting little spikes. Um, right now, I don't think, you know, overall the, the data that's coming out says that, you know, common sense, COVID caused a drastic decrease in the amount of injuries that occurred, particularly during the shutdown. And that's when what has been released right now and what's being published. Um, but, you know, I think uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of the next set of that. So what happened when they went back? Um, we know that when they weren't playing sports, they weren't getting injured. Um, but the, the sort of return um, will certainly be interested um, to see. Uh, those injury rates, again, are not yet um, available or haven't been published. Obviously, there's a lag. Um, and then we know that ACL injuries were on the rise pre-pandemic. Um, certainly, we are back in full swing. Um, that's all I'm doing today uh, in the OR. So um, sports are back. ACL injuries are back. Um, and so it will remain to be seen um, if there's going to be changes in the injury rate um, as we go forward. Next slide. So what's up next? Um, so our winter sports uh, obviously are all indoors. So ice hockey, basketball, indoor track, swimming, wrestling, gymnastics, cheer and dance. Um, so essentially none of these sports happened last year. Um, the CIAC has not released uh, guidelines for what's going to come. 
um, I would, I would guess that, you know, the recommendation is going to be that we um, continue to wear masks for indoor sports. Um, I don't know what sort of uh, risks we can mitigate with ice hockey since it seems to be a, a fairly unique um, environment. Um, and then wrestling, I think, remains um, the big concern. We know that swimming um, for the girls went well uh, in the fall. And so um, boys swimming is occurring in the winter. Um, wrestling, obviously, is probably the highest contact sport one can imagine um, as far as face-to-face -face, uh, time. And so I think uh, we'll have to see what the recommendations are at that point. Next slide. So how can we help? Um, so this is my, uh, my touchy-feely plug here. <laughs> so I think it's important when you are talking to your athletes, talking to your families, um, to acknowledge the situation. I think um, particularly people who maybe weren't athletes or, you know, we're, we're all fairly removed from high school. And we, we joke about those people who talk about their glory days of high school football. But um, this is really important. Um, many of these athletes have lost at least one, if not two seasons. Um, and this has really affected people's lives. So the probability of a high school athlete playing a collegiate sport um, hovers around 9%, and that's all comers D1 through D3. Um, and really, if you look at the rates, um, they're published by the NCAA, um, it's stratified by sport, stratified by division, um, and broken down by gender. So um, it really ranges from three to 12%, depending on the sport. Um, so what happened? So a bunch of these students lost their recruiting season. So junior year season um, and sometimes senior year season are the ones that really um, affect your ability to go on and play a collegiate sport. So those are the recruiting times. Um, patients who lost their junior year um, don't have those contacts, don't have those films that they would normally be sending out. Um, and then there's this, this backup from the top end as well. So there's the NCAA granted an extra year of eligibility to all athletes um, from last year, from 2020 into 2021. So this creates sort of a, a lack of scholarships and a lack of positions on teams for rising freshmen. So students who, you know, were on track to Oh, who were maybe depending on, you know, getting that college scholarship to play a sport and that is their ticket to college. Um, a lot of that's been wiped out. So this is, a, this is, you know, has huge mental health implications. It has huge economic implications for these kids. Um, not that college is, is everything. And obviously there are other routes, but I think that this, this truly has changed a lot of people's lives. Um, and so I think it's important it's just important to acknowledge that um, when you're talking to them. And uh, so, you know, athlete is a really important part of people's identity um, for these students. And they lost that last year. I mean, they lost a lot um, in the year. And I know, I think we all recognize that, but um, just a small plug to be, you know, a little uh, understanding when it comes to people's concerns. Um, and then, you know, the, the pandemic has also magnified the effect of injuries. So right now I have students who lost last year and maybe they went out and got injured in their first game back this year. Um, and that may have wiped out their junior and senior year seasons. So then the reality is that, you know, the chance to actually go on and play a collegiate sport is, is significantly diminished. I mean, at that point you have to know somebody, you have to, um, you know, find a way to get in to talk to a coach and, you know, avouge that your sophomore year footage is, is how good you are. Um, it's really, really a difficult situation um, and it's impacting a lot of athletes. Next. 
<clears throat> and then also, and as, as I'm sure everyone is doing, um, we need to educate and keep an open dialogue about vaccines because you know, I truly believe that obviously this is the way out of this. Um, you know, I think it's important to recognize, to address people's concerns and fears, um, to acknowledge them, and then to you know, push the benefits that we want our kids in school and we want them out on the field. Um, and this is probably the best way to protect them. Next. So a huge thank you um, for having me today and a huge thank you to those of you who deal with this day in and day out. Um, I have the luxury of being in my little sports bubble, but I know, um, you know, dealing with the misinformation and dealing with people's concerns um, is exhausting. And so thank you to all of you primary care doctors out there. Dr. Capel, thank you so much for a most informative talk today. We certainly have a number of questions based on the changes that are taking place in our environment, mostly for the good over the last month. So a couple to Dr. Schreiber from Dr. Zelnaritis. Good mortality data is available in most settings. What will we do about morbidity rates and their effects? Yeah. Where are we now in this area? Uh, you know, Ed, that's a great question. Um, we know that COVID has morbidity. They're long haulers in the adult community. They're people with heart issues. We don't know the numbers yet. And in the pediatric community, um, we also have kids who don't seem to be feeling better for weeks and weeks. And then we have some kids who get Missy and cardiac abnormalities when they're sick with Missy and they get better, we think. So it's a great question and time will tell. Time will tell. We're going to have to follow this. Thank you. Some more questions about boosters, obviously on everyone's mind, and I'm going to combine two of these questions. Could you discuss in more detail the data of mixing doses after the initial mRNA, any advantage? Is mixing J&J &J with Moderna, does one get a 50 microgram dose or the 100? So as my understanding so far, remember, um, uh, this is still evolving, but this is that the Moderna booster dose is half the 100, so it's 50. And that's the booster dose that Moderna's out there. And my suspicion will be that will be any boosting for whether you got J&J &J first or Pfizer first, it's going to be Moderna at 50. However, I, I'd want to, let's see if that settles out as, as that's what the final decision is. So yes, and the RNA vaccines and the, the NIH data after J&J &J were great boosters. In fact, they boosted better than a second dose of J&J. &J. So my recommendation is probably going to be if you got the J&J, just get one of the RNA vaccines as your booster dose. The UK, despite having a high rate of vaccination, seems to be having an unabated surge. Does this reflect the lower efficacy of the non-mRNA vaccines, or should these vaccines be dropped as a worthwhile public health intervention? I think, you know, it's an interesting question. So, the, to repeat, the UK is having another resurgence of COVID. And I think there's some differences. First of all, the UK is performing more as a single entity because of the national health system. So you're getting sort of this resurgence nationally. If you look at the United States, you know, we have a horrible resurgence. And, but when you're highly immunized in New England, we don't. So again, it's, it's apples and oranges a little bit comparing the UK to the US, it's different. We're like 50 UKs, all different. But that said, remember, initially the UK got a lots of AstraZeneca and which is similar to the J&J &J vaccine. We don't think it's as good as the RNA vaccines, but you know, time will tell. We, we're gonna have to watch very carefully as we move back indoors to see whether we have a little bit of resurgence. Now to answer your question of the vaccines, the UK data are great, but I showed you the American data. The American data show if you're immunized 
and you're in a state that's highly immunized, you're probably not going to die of COVID. You're not going to have the ICU. I mean, the data are as concrete as you're ever going to get. I've ever seen in my epidemiologic 30 year career. These are great data showing vaccine efficacy. You know, I mean, we've never had this experience with hundreds of millions of people being immunized. So the answer is it works. What's going on in the UK is a cautionary tale. We're going to need to have to watch closely, but they're very different than we are, both the initial vaccine and the fact that's an integrated country. And, and, and by the way, they also gave up on all, um, most of the public health features, masking and all that, they sort of loosened it all up at once across the whole country. So it's different than what's happened here, but we, we need to watch carefully to make sure that doesn't happen here as well. I think you're, it's a good point. Okay, great. And uh, I can add to this question and that we're seeing right now a mini surge of respiratory illnesses in my private practice and in many around the state, some wheezing, some RSV. And the question is, with lower COVID rates in Connecticut, would you continue to try to avoid nebulized treatments for children with asthma in the community pediatric office? Well, it's a great question. And you're right. We, well, I was on service a couple of weeks ago. We saw adenovirus, RSV. Uh, and I've now been told by our infection control uh, nurses, we've had our first influenza positives. So, you know, kids are mixing again. We've loosened up. We're in a healthier place in New England and Connecticut than we were. We are going to start seeing respiratory viruses, no question. I, you know, I like to watch community spread. I think if we continue to get community spread down, particularly as we roll out pediatric immunizations, I think nebulizing for asthma is going to become routine again. I, I don't think we're quite there yet. It's close. And you saw, you know, again, Connecticut, it's very town by town. There's a lot of red towns still. So, and you don't know, you know, I don't know where the patients have been. So again, I'd be a little cautious still um, until our community spreads a bit lower. Okay, thank you. And to Dr. Propel, schools may be able to ask vaccination status of athletes, but I hear that some other clubs, i.e. drama, are not allowed to even ask, at least in some schools. It's important to see how winter sports go since there is a trickle down to other extracurricular activities. Uh, could you comment on this, please? Um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I honestly don't know what the what the impact is going to be, you know, when it comes to schools. Obviously, you know, the decision to make a, um, a vaccine mandate is is going to be a big decision. It's obviously going to come with um, pushback. So, um, you know, right now it's just a recommendation that you know we talk to people, that we educate them. Um, as everyone's been doing. And so I, you know, I don't know, I, I honestly don't know what the impact is going to be because obviously there are other things, but I would assume that for, you know, drama clubs and things like that, most people are indoors, you follow mask mandates. Um, I don't know what that will mean for performances and things like that for, um, as far as for the per more performing type indoor, um, sports such as uh, cheerleading, you know, for example, um, in dance, they're allowed to remove their masks only when they're stunting and then they put them back on after. So um, I'm not sure that how that will translate up to um, to like performing arts and stage performances, but it's a good question. Okay, thank you. Um, Dr. Schreiber, any guidance of parents asking about vaccines for children less than five and the young ones less than two in daycare? Certainly, we're already starting to get those questions in our private practices as they ask more and we inform more about the five to 12s. Yeah, I think um, Moderna and Pfizer both have clinical trials in progress down to six months, I believe. So the answer is we're going to get data sometime this winter. 
um, and, and know better as to the efficacy and safety in the younger age groups. If it's anything like the other uh, hundreds of millions of people who've got it now, including uh, children, uh, it's going to be fine and, and we'll have very good antibody titers, but let's see, and see what the data show. But I know those clinical trials are in progress and there is light at the end of the tunnel to see that probably this winter. Okay, thank you. Can you speak about Merck's antiviral Maldonavir and its use and effectiveness? Yeah, I mean, the data, initial data were really good. It was a 50% reduction in uh, serious illness and hospitalization uh, after um, uh, exposure. And uh, those are very good data for an antiviral. And I think it's going to be added to our armamentarium as we move forward, much like we have Tamiflu and influenza immunization. I think we're going to have immunization as the bulwark. And then you'll have also an antiviral that can be utilized as well. I haven't seen all the Merck data yet. I haven't seen treatment data. I haven't seen the full 360 spectrum for that antiviral, but it's very exciting and very promising. And I think will be part of our armamentarium shortly. Okay. And as I said, as we talked about the increase in respiratory illnesses that we're all seeing, a question, should we continue testing every patient that has symptoms consistent with COVID throughout the winter? And should we start testing for the regular flu at the office as well? Well, I'll answer the second one first. Yes, you should be thinking of regular respiratory infections now. And a lot of the um, uh, office and rapid base will test for both influenza and COVID at the same time. And I, I think that's important. Um, until community spread is down, um, I think we are, for kids who are very symptomatic, any kid who gets admitted, we're screening. And certainly we're screening anybody with respiratory infection. And we're probably gonna need to continue to do that for a little while longer. But absolutely look for the other respiratory viruses. They are there and they're going to be more of them because kids are interacting again, as they should be. Super. Does vaccination obviate the need for masks? I thought we were continuing masking regardless of vaccination status. At the moment, that's correct. Indoors, masks are strongly recommended by the CDC, vaccinated or unvaccinated, because we know a small number of vaccinated can acquire the virus and spread it, although that number seems smaller uh, than previous. There's some new data suggesting it's not as much of a problem as we thought. But yes, the recommendation is indoors, vaccinated or not vaccinated, wear a mask. Um, I believe if we can move this dial down a bit more and our community spread goes down as we immunize children, my bet will be the recommendation will go back to immunize, don't need to wear a mask, but we're not there. It's still wear a mask indoors. Okay. Not a question, but great kudos for your talk, Dr. Propel. Thank you. Do we have numbers of pediatric hospitalizations and deaths in Connecticut? The AAP reports 700 plus pediatric deaths nationwide. Yeah, you know, we do have, the, I don't have it offhand. I know it's a very small number of deaths in Connecticut and the hospitalizations. Um, I don't know the numbers. We're not seeing a lot of acute COVID at Connecticut Children's hospitalized right now, we are seeing Missy. I know in other states where there's been rampant Delta, there've been a lot of pediatric hospitalizations we've mentioned before, and now Missy's shooting up in those states as it does a month or so after. But the Connecticut numbers are small, but I don't know them offhand. We can get them to you our next, our next session. Okay. Um, Ken, there was an ivermectin question about India, which I'd like to answer. Okay. okay. So why don't you read it? Okay, just one second. Uh, it was, uh, do we have any information, and I can rephrase this, on the decreasing uh, COVID infection rates in India as relates to their use of ivermectin? Yeah, so I, I think the problem is when you, when you have an uncontrolled drug being given lots of people, 
Um, you have no idea what it's doing. And if you look at the United States right now, we're not widely giving ivermectin, okay? A few individuals are getting cattle ivermectin, but it's not a lot. Delta's going down. It burns through your population. You, you know, you end up having a lot of people infected with herd immunity and it burns through it. That's what happened in India. They had a horrible outbreak. A lot of people got infected. A lot of people are at least transiently immune now, and it's fading the way Delta's burned through the United States. I don't know whether ivermectin had anything to do with it. Until we do controlled clinical trials, we're not going to know. And if it works, I'll be the first out there to say, hey, the controlled clinical trial shows efficacy. But right now, the controlled placebo-controlled clinical trial I've seen doesn't show efficacy. So we just need to be cautious. That's all. And I, India, you know, lots of people got it. I don't know what had anything to do with Delta burning out there. Okay. And is there any uh, information on the development of a pan-coronavirus vaccine? There's a lot of work on that, um, where you try to pull epitopes or surface molecules from a variety of coronaviruses or a universal one that would protect against all coronaviruses, because there's a lot of worry that either with variants or a new coronavirus, there are others in bats and there are others in some animals that have been discovered, uh, that we'd have yet another pandemic. So the answer is there's a lot of work on that right now. There's some promising research, but there's no viable vaccine yet. It is nine o'clock. I know we would all like to stay here a lot longer. I want to thank Dr. Cropot for taking time out of your busy schedule and Dr. Schreiber. Our next uh, COVID update, Ask the Experts, will be on Friday, November 19th. I wish you all a safe and healthy couple of weeks, and we'll be in touch. Thank you.